Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, this conversation should help everyone. What the hell is going on with consumers, their mindset, their mood and their spending intentions as we head into economic turbulence? Will they behave differently to the COVID contraction and even previous downturns? Uh, Many in marketing and communications today, by the way, haven't really seen one of those in their careers. So the best place to start on all this social and market researchers who are plugged in closely to early consumer signals. Today, we've got Roy Morgan's CEO, Michelle Levine, veteran qualitative consumer researcher, Nia Korn, and Southern Cross Osterio's client insights and effectiveness director, Jasmine Beach, who oversees a six-monthly consumer mood survey. I should say, I did ask one, another leading research house, uh, Ipsos, to join the panel on this, but they declined again. So they're very special people over there. But welcome to Michelle, Nia, and Jasmine, nonetheless. I think we all need to steer, really, on what's emerging at the moment, but it seems like very few actually know. So, Nia Korn, let's start with your read on what's happening in consumer land. How worried are people and what are they thinking and feeling about the current environment? Is it ominous? Welcome, Nia. Oh, thank you. It's pretty extraordinary times we live in because in a normal period of time, Australians have one or two big issues to worry about. It feels now that the world's spun out of control a bit and people just don't know. I think it's incredibly hard to predict where people are at right now because they've got so many conflicting worries and trends that are huge ones, you know. So, And apart from that, we still have a sense of PTSD from COVID. I mean, that was an extraordinary thing to happen to the people. And then you go from that, the Ukraine, the economy, China, Donald Trump, and there seems to be an overwhelming amount of things to worry about. And if you had one or two, you could easily predict, you know, all right, we're out of COVID, all right, people are going to go out and do stuff. And then COVID finished and people weren't going out and doing stuff. What was happening? And I think to say for all the trends at the moment, it's just... It's a bit like the weatherman, you know, he says, the weatherman says, three days, I can tell you, after that, I'm just guessing. And it's a bit like that. I can tell you a little bit now, but a month, two months, six months, it's impossible to tell at the moment. The big one is always happens when there's big dramas in the world is we tend to batten down the hatches. So we focus on the home. That's why when you drive around, every home is being renovated at the moment, you know, and let's make the place safe and comfortable. So we buy things and do things for the home. But at the same time, we haven't been out for two and a half years. Oh, shouldn't we be traveling and doing the world at the same time? Hold on. But then there's the mortgage. Oh, hold on. Oh, everything's costing so much. There's a worry, but not knowing where it's going to land or how to plan for it. Michelle, how does that all sit with you? What are the key watchouts at the moment on your radar? And we'll also get to some of these things you talk about around a two-step consumer economy. We'll get to that shortly. But first up, your read on, on near and, and the bigger picture. And welcome, Michelle. Look, can I just say the first thing is that people really can only worry deeply about one or two things at a time, and that's kind of the facts. But I looked at a paper that I had written in about 2010. My goodness, it could have been exactly what was happening now. International unrest, concerns about the environment, you know, inflation, all of the same things that were, it could have been painting the picture for today. So we have been in these fairly chaotic times before. And I think what's interesting is that Australians are typically 
really resilient in terms of our consumer confidence. I mean, I sit here and, and I'm a researcher, not a predictor, but you can't help predicting. You can't help thinking, gee, consumer confidence is going to drop this week. And then the numbers come in and typically it hasn't. It's been pretty strong, but this time we have really low levels of consumer confidence. And I think that's incredibly important. I mean, we watch, I guess the key things to think about are the economy and how people feel about it. So look, consumer confidence at the moment is sitting at 82.4 and 100 is the line where you have equal. And so we're well below that. And that's down eight points since the election. And it's now lower than in the global financial crisis. So that was a really low point. This is this is low um, numbers for consumers. So it, it, it is that situation. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with our data, and you might even call, coin the phrase, the wisdom of the masses, when we ask people what they expect about inflation, they're telling us 6.1%. So, you know, about 6% and the CPI came in at 6.1%. Right. So people are kind of on track knowing how things are at the moment. But, you know, nobody knows the future. So what's your sense, Michelle, consumer, the implications from consumer confidence levels into the market now, soon, later? What does that confidence level, that low confidence indicator suggest? Yeah, so typically if you've got low consumer confidence, you'd expect spending to be dipping. You'd expect people to be going, oh, I'm really nervous about things, not sure there'll be money next year, better save. We're not seeing that. We are absolutely not seeing that. Again, I keep predicting that spending's going to start tapering off. It just keeps coming through very, very strongly, like massive increases. And the ABS will come out with their figure in about an hour for June. Right. We reckon that's going to be pretty strong and high. So we have this, to me, counterintuitive spending, but that spending is essentially happening because of all of the the government funding that was provided to get us through COVID, and a lot of that went into spending, a lot of it went into savings. So savings really, really skyrocketed. They're coming down a bit now as we spend, but they're still way higher than they were before COVID. So, you know, the people, and it's dangerous to talk about um, averages, but your average Australian, having said it's dangerous, typically is feeling a bit more solid because of their savings. I do want to ask Jasmine what you're seeing. Jasmine, welcome. And what are you seeing in your own research? You do it twice yearly in every six-month you know, poll. Um, what are you seeing coming through in your data? Absolutely. So our last dip was the week after the federal election. So probably just wanted to preface that this is May data. And in two months, we have seen so much happen in terms of rate increases and Whilst we were, as a nation, quite happy then, our three um, top moods were positive, we were seeing concern already start to tick up in May. And one of those sort of underlying worries that we started to see for the first time coming through was cost of living. Whenever we asked an open-ended question around, what is your biggest worry right now? It was always just sort of money, health, family. But for the first time, that 
articulation of cost of living actually came through as the number two thing. And that was in May before all of this has started to happen. So we are seeing consumers really start to, I guess, have that concern about what is to come. And to Michelle and Nia's point, we are seeing people being a lot more concerned about the Australian economy. Our sort of four years of trending around being very worried about the Australian economy is actually higher now than what it was in COVID. And that's sort of a real indication of people also being really mindful around what is happening around them. Um, And we did put in their war and armed conflict and that actually debuted at number six for their worry. And I think that's sort of a really interesting thing. People are so aware now of the world around them and how that's starting to influence their day-to-day lives. And we do, to Nia's point, talk about um, how our mood and our concerns and bits and pieces like that, sometimes what's happening at a macro level sometimes doesn't impact how we feel together. But what we're seeing now is the cost of living has having that direct impact on the hip pocket, which is then impacting mood. And we are seeing people look at kind of money-saving measures, like 70% of the people that we surveyed had undertaken money-saving measures in the past four weeks, which is incredible. That's different to your previous study. How significant was that jump? We actually put that in for the first time. So I don't have any historical data there, unfortunately. Okay. And what about in terms of the overall, you've been doing this survey for, I think, nine years. I think, Jasmine, is that right? And so what else is standing out in terms of that last round that you did in the long range effects, that is? Yeah. When you look at things over nine years, we are seeing happiness as a nation go down. Um, It did kind of come back up again for 2022, but our anxiousness levels were rising quite significantly over the past nine years. And when you think about like our 18-year-olds today, when we first started surveying them, they were nine years old. And so we're seeing this whole generation come through with our tracking and people are a lot more aware of how they think, how they feel and that sort of um, mental health and being aware of our anxiousness levels. And obviously so much has happened in nine years, but particularly in the last two years that then starts to impact our mood. Um, But very much the anxiousness is driven by those 18 to 29-year-olds and we are seeing those increases um, a lot stronger within that age group. Nia, when Michelle talks about spending holding up, how do you explain that with the total confusion that's out there and uncertainty, people are still spending? Is there a, a psychological thing going on here that you could inform me about if no one else? Uh, it's hard to say, but I think Michelle is right about this. That people have money. They're cashed up. They didn't spend for two and a half years. They were stuck at home. Want to do something with it. What do we do? And then suddenly you hear, oh, geez, interest rates, inflation. Keep in mind, for 25 years, we've had consistent growth, low inflation, low unemployment. People were cocky. That's why the 18 to 29-year-olds, they could just be in a job for a year and say, I don't like you anymore, go to the next one, go to the next one. Well, they're still doing it, Nia. Still, oh, because there's plenty <laughs> of Nothing's jobs Nothing's changed around. yet, yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like the guy at the Commonwealth Bank who said to me the guy quit because he wasn't getting enough one-on-one time with the CEO. (laughs) (laughs) So that's been their life until now. But and, And then suddenly that's not the case anymore. And so what do you do next? How do you plan for something? And, you know, the the young people have had this unrealistic expectation, as young people do, but especially in Australia, I can do anything, I can be anything, you know, partly because the parents told them that their whole lives. I'm weary now. I'm really not sure. And I think that's what I'm seeing. And the mood that Jasmine talks about is so important. Let me give you one little statistic. Before COVID, 2019, 1.2 million mental health plans were issued in Australia. Before COVID, we're not happy. We're stressed. John Howard used to say that his aim is to make 
that people relax and comfortable because that's what the nation needs. And that's precisely, what, I don't know if you got there, but that's we are far, far away from being relaxed and comfortable, which is why I think it's really hard to find patterns in all of this. Yeah. Because there's no mass movement. There's just bits and pieces of people. What do we do in our circumstance? And the wariness is unbelievable. I'll give you a tiny example. I, when I speak to people who live on the outskirts of the city, what's their biggest worry? Petrol. Why? Your kid goes to soccer, that's 30 kilometers away. How am I going to pay for that? And we've got to remember that you've got these people who are obviously doing well, but then the people who are squeezed and have no credit. You know, they did a study in America and they found that 17% of people, 17, can't come up with $400 in disposable cash. That's incredible. And for people on low incomes, it's here the same. So they're feeling the stress much greater the ones who are doing well on good incomes, et cetera. But that sense of uncertainty is, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that's happening right now. Michelle, do you think um, that anxiousness, what are you seeing in that younger set in terms of the anxiousness? And is it, to Nir's point, um, is it either the anxiousness is coming from unrealised ambitions or is it that weariness that he talks about or is it both? It could be both really. But um... Look, I, I don't know, but um, as somebody just said, it's not just COVID-induced. Um, we've been tracking things like uh, all the mental health dimensions for about 20 years, and it's the young people, particularly young males, then particularly young males in the country, that are absolutely skyrocketing on dimensions of anxiety, stress, depression. Um, and, and women have high levels of depression as well, but the men were the way we were seeing the, the massive increase. Look, there are many reasons for that, and, and not you can't forget the fact that it's it's fine to say, I'm having a mental health day today. That's just, you know, kind of cool. Everyone has mental health days. There are programs that you just say, yes, I'd like one. So when we do a survey, people have the language to say, yes, I'm stressed or no, it's not really stress, it's depression and a bit of anxiety. So we now have the language for it. And previously it was not discussed. That's one thing. But I think during COVID and all of these other areas of concern, we've had a lot of change in society. And there's no question that the women's movement has kind of turned the men's world upside down. You're feeling the pressure. Gradually, so you almost didn't even notice it. But, you know, it, when you talk about the, the men's clubs like the Australian club that don't want women, it's not the old blokes. It's the young men that are kind of not wanting women. This, there's a lot of strange and different pressures on people in the world these days. And and COVID is not a continuation of that. It's another thing. But, you know, the the point that Nia made about post-PTSD uh, after COVID is probably really true. And I think the way that we handle that is going to be incredibly important because if everyone in Australia goes on a mental health program, I mean, we'll all just be sitting around talking about things and to some extent we just need to get back into life. We need to get back to work. We need to get back to routine, you know, and I'm not just advocating forget COVID, uh, ignore masks. I'm not saying that. But we do need to kind of try and get back into life. And Nia was also saying that there are different kinds of people with different, in different circumstances, different mindsets. So some people during COVID, and I'm thinking of, you know, nurses and those people, I mean, they just had to put their head down and work like crazy things, and they'll be just going, oh, my God, I just can't keep going anymore. 
other people went straight home, set themselves up in, in our area. The librarian has been working from home ever since COVID and the library's shut. Wow, you still have a library. That's impressive. I remember that from my broadsheet <laughs> newspaper days. It's shut. We used to have a librarian. <laughs> wow, I'm coming to Roy Morgan. But some people do things and some people don't do things. So some we've got the range from absolutely exhausted through COVID to kind of I've been on a two-and-a-half-year holiday and I don't much feel like coming out of my cocoon. So it's not consistent. There are no absolutely general points. Mm, interesting. So can we get to um, this notion of yours, Michelle, about this potential for we may be seeing a two-step consumer economy in this notion that you talk about neos, which are the, yes. the freer, bigger spending group of people is the way that I'm paraphrasing. You'll correct me and put more elegance around them versus traditionals. Yeah, so these premium consumers called NEOs, the New Economic Order, are always the ones that will recover first from a global financial crisis. They'll recover first from anything that's thrown at them. I mean, they'll go, oh my goodness, my house is burnt down. Right, what am I going to do? As opposed to my house is burnt down. Oh no, just sort of sit there. So these NEOs recovered first after the global financial crisis. They are recovering first. They're now, their consumer confidence is 20% higher than the rest of the community. So they're already starting or they're already doing things. And they'll be looking at things like interest rates and saying, okay, if interest rates go up, the opportunities that creates will be here. They are active participants in life. They're active with their money. They're active with their decision-making. That's about a quarter of the population, you think? Is that right? Yeah, it's 24%. Okay. Absolutely right. Yes. Nia, interested in your take on that mindset line between, say, traditional consumers and this new economic order, as Michelle talks about it. Do you see that coming through in any of your work? There's a certain portion of the population that's always doing well. It, seems, it strikes me as a quarter seems about right. And they're, they're kind of empowered people generally. They feel confident. They've probably got good jobs. They're earning reasonably well. They're safe. Do you know what I mean? They feel safe. They don't have these huge worries. It, you know, to worry about money is absolutely the most stressful thing one can handle. You know, I did, did this group with pensioners and you know, they're telling me how much they're worried about the hot water system breaking down. Or, you know, this one woman says, all I do for myself at the moment is every Friday I get the pension, I go to the cafe and I have a cappuccino and raisin bread. So there is a proportion of people that are absolutely doing well. They know what to do. And in fact, this very characteristic is what made many, many young people the same, because it's a common factor amongst young people, this unbridled optimism, I can do anything, I'll achieve everything I want. Now, there's people who know the system in society, they do really well. The worry is all the rest, obviously, who aren't doing so well and don't have that agency that these people have. That's my thinking. Michelle, how do we find these neos? So I'm sure there's a few people wanting to track them down and try and sort of talk to them at least and see if they can't get some upbeat in business. Where are they in the in Australia? Well, they're in the Roy Morgan single source database, of ah, course. Of Thank course. you for nice that plug. question, Paul. <laughs> that sounds like a Dorothy Dixon. Well done, but Paul. I know, but you know, one of the key things is we look at people's customer bases, whether it's a, a, a Maya or whether it's a, you know any any organisation. Identify the neos, and what you'll find is. The neos will spend more. They spend more per product and they spend more frequently. So they buy cars every year, not every 
seven years like the average. So you have to identify those people in the market and 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 target them. And one of the big challenges is recognising the willingness to pay that exists. And if you sort of start discounting your high-value, gorgeous, beautiful products and services that these neos will fall in love with and pay 10 times the base price. But you look at it and you go, oh, no, people are feeling poor and, gee, the pensioners can only afford raisin bread. Um, Let's just give it a 20% um, premium. Well, they'll pay the 20% premium, but they were really ready to pay nine times because it was what they fell in love with. Even in a downturn or even in a contraction. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the critical things. People who want to have things. And there's, let me say, I know lots of really, really, really rich people who are not neos and they are petrified. They have so much money that you would never, you know, they're never going to run out of money, but they're so worried about things. So it's not just having the money. It's the agency and it's the expectation that they'll be able to do good things and they just want to get out and do it. So for people wanting to capture that group, capture their mind, their heart and their dollars, you really need to understand them. And, you know, examples of things like having um, a product or your your um, pharmacy things delivered within an hour, they'll pay for that. They want it, it's important to them, but if you only offer it within a week, that's all that's on offer, won't expect to pay for it. There's huge hidden potential that that organisations are missing out on by not understanding their customers and their potential customers. I just want to get back to Jasmine for a sec because I think you raised first up that anxiety amongst the younger set, Jasmine, and, and of the five of us, how many of us, five of us on this panel, you look closer to a, a younger person than the rest of us. I don't know how we put that without getting in trouble with Michelle and Nia, but I just did. But I'm just interested in that anxiety and that, and you know, those 30-somethings, you know, you and your peers, just is it reflected in, in the industry that your peers, your colleagues, your friends, do you see that coming through? Absolutely. I'm not going to ask how old you are. <laughs> well, I'll allude to it. Uh, so when the GFC happened in 2007, I was not an adult yet, so I didn't have to make adult decisions around what was going on. And a lot of my peers there, this is our first experience. And we kind of talk a lot about emotional resilience as well. And we did see that big dip in 2020 when the pandemic first started, because for a lot of us, this was the first time we'd ever experienced anything remotely close to an economic downturn. And Australia hardly copped it versus the rest of the world as well, right? Exactly. So it was, it was a bit cotton wooled. Exactly. And so I feel as though it doesn't matter what age you are, we have built this a little bit more of emotional resilience of, okay, we've gone through the pandemic and now we're hit with the cost of living. But at least I like I have experienced something. If we went straight into that cost of living, like we saw in October 2019, people were really scared about what the economy was going to be doing because we hadn't had a recession in a really long time. So there was this sort of downturn that we were starting to see. And then all of a sudden this pandemic happened and it was a completely different thing that we were thinking that was going to happen. But I guess sort of at that younger generation as well, one thing that we are seeing in terms of financially where they're at, the millennials are over-indexing with saving for investment and for their financial future. They're a lot more aware of what they need to, what they need for the future. There's so much more information out there for young people to go and have a look at and go, do I actually have enough money 
to live right now, but also do I have enough money to retire with? And that's another big thing that's sort of coming through there. And like I know for myself, sort of those those stock markets, where can I put my money? How can I maximize the money that I do have at the moment in order to set myself up for that that rainy day? Yes, I still want the house. I still want the car, but I want to make sure future Jasmine is all set up and um, ready to go as well. Because for me, my parents, I saw what happened with this. They were telling me sort of later on what happened with their super when the GFC happened. And I'm kind of going, well, I don't want to be in that position when I get to retirement age or whatever that might be. So making sure that we're setting ourselves up for what is to come in the future. Nia, is uh, Jasmine's observations about herself uh, reflected on what you see coming through with your conversations in market? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think this is an area we can actually make a prediction because for the last two or two decades, young people had really a gap decade. You know, where the boomers had a gap year, they carried a gap decade from 18 to my late 20s, explore, travel, build my CV, filled with experience so I can regale future generation with stories. And then the housing thing came in stronger and stronger and stronger. And what happened is one of the core values of the Australian dream, it's a human right in Australia to own your own home. That's how we historically have been. And suddenly they're thinking, Hold on a second, because what happens is they get close to 30. By 30, you want to achieve a few goals. You'd like a home, you'd like a partner, you'd like a career. And if you've got a couple of those going, you're doing fine. And now they're saying, hold on a second, I think the home's not going to happen. Um, and that's why we've had a third life crisis. You know, at 30, that's where the middle, middle, uh, the midlife crisis comes in, because you did all this traveling and stuff. You get to 28 and you go, shit, how am I going to have the home and the career and the partner in two years? And that's where they get kind of my dreams do not meet them. And what I think is going to happen because of all of this is the dreams are going to subside and they may become a bit more conservative and worry about their careers and money, et cetera, instead of see, sitting on the beach in Kopipi or volunteering in Nigeria. So I want to get to the spending implications. Michelle, you had a really interesting observation that we were talking the other day about sort of big brands and products and companies need to watch out for this, what will likely happen, the sense of community and local. Uh, and you made an observation that in, in Melbourne CBD, some of the big stores might be shut and closed, but you go out to, you'll come up with a suburb because it's where you were born, I think. But it was Northcote. Northcote, and it's heaving in Northcote, which I think might be equivalent to a new town here in Sydney for those that are in different states. What do you think is going to happen in spending and categories? And let's go to that community sense you talk about. Let's start with the community thing. I think there has been a gentle move towards community, people valuing community, but very much at the neo or top discretionary spending group. Now I think we're seeing more quickly a move back towards community. People aren't all flocking into the city to work and that's the centroid of their life every day. So there's a lot more time being spent in the community. There's a lot more engagement at local area in the community. And there's that opportunity for community areas to play a much larger role. Now, that doesn't mean that, say, Kmart hasn't got a hope, but Kmart does have to recognise that the local community that it's operating in has different kinds of people and make sure that it's actually relevant to them. And I think that's really important. The the big example would be something like Barnes & Noble, you know, the bookshop in America, which was essentially doing really badly. And then what they did is they sort of, you might describe it as decentralising control down to the local managers 
who could then choose what books, what prices, and it flourished. And that's because, you know, it, it's part of the, once an organisation gets engaged with the community, it feels like part of the community and it's a wonderful circular thing where it, it can do better, it attracts the community. So I think that's a, a really important thing to look out for. And I was thinking about this overnight. One of the other things that I've been deeply involved in in the last couple of years is looking at trust and distrust. And what we've seen during COVID is that places like the supermarkets, particularly Woolworths and Coles have kept very close, have just stormed ahead in terms of people trusting them and not distrusting them because they stepped up, they did what people needed, they stayed open, they went to deliveries, all of those sorts of things. But that trust will be fragile if they don't get it right in this next phase. You know, will people be comfortable when lettuce goes from, you know, $4 or $2 to $11? Do they believe that it's a real issue? So that will be incredibly important. And the bigger companies, when something happens that makes people distrust them, it just goes like wildfire. So there'll be a really important communication piece for all of these large companies that have um, you know, a very big voice and, and, and are very visible. They'll have to be, you know, the, the simplest way to talk about this is truth told simply. Don't be tricky. Don't try and put prices up and make up excuses for it. Kind of come out and let people know. Um, so there'll be a number of those things that will help bring people along with them or lose them if they get it wrong. Truth told simply, I think it's like a 100-year-old tagline from one of the ad agency networks like Jay Walter Thompson or Leo Burnett's or something, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, doing it's the point. Absolutely. So what, what Michelle's talking about, Nia, do you have any sense on, you sort of hinted earlier about home life and people focusing on the home for comfort. Any other categories, products, services that you think may be higher on the radar for people in a contraction? And then let's have a quick talk about what brands and marketers are asking of you, because I guess they're doing the same thing as we are, trying to work some shit out. I think Michelle is right that uh, premium is really important and we've got to think about it a bit differently. So if you take the poorest people, um, for them, the sense is, if I can't afford proper Tim Tams, if I've got to buy the home brand Tim Tams, what's the point of living? Where has it got to where I can't enjoy my life anymore? And there's something really fascinating. When you go shopping with poorer people, um, you, all the home brands are at the bottom and at the top are the Tim Tams, you know, the proper branding. When you go with, to shop in Mossman and follow people, what you'll see is the opposite. The premiums at the bottom, the caviar and quiche. And at the top, you've got the home brand. Look at me, I'm saving. And it's a psychological step for themselves, obviously. Wow, really? I hadn't noticed that difference by geography, by suburb. Oh, because it's a rich or poor suburb. That's all I'm saying that. You know, you've got very few kind of, it's a, yeah, they're obvious ones. And I think the other one is the home deliveries of stuff. And obviously it's convenient and milk run and these things, very easy and very convenient. But there's something more to it. We're looking for little surprises in life, little moments of joy, the slices of life. When you can't enjoy the big things and stuff, Enjoy the little tiny things. You get home and there's a package there. Oh, wow. And these things are really important. So the emotional purchases are really key. And I think you're right. There's no direct correlation between, you know, there's some things you have to have premium 
And it's all about the psychology of it as opposed to the actual benefits of the product. It's a feeling that I'm, I'm still doing okay. I'm part of this society. Uh, and that's where the whole community thing comes in very, very, very powerfully. And people have to create it when it doesn't exist, you know. People say, I live in the Paddington community. So what does that mean? He says, I know my local barista. We're crying out for what we used to have in the old days. And we don't. The only place you find these communities now is in cul-de-sacs and new developments because families move in, young families, they get to know each other, they feel safe. But this yearning for communities, absolutely right. They're using local stores to speak locally. It's part of battening down the hatches. You know, you focus on you and then your family and the extended family and the community and stuff the world because it's going stuffed anyway. So. Mm-hmm. so, Neil, what are the conversations you're having with brands and marketers? I know, you know you've know you got a, a syndicated product that many of them are subscribing to. What are they coming back at you with when they see your data and what are they coming for looking for guidance with? What are they asking of you? Well, they're asking really what we're doing today. What should we do? What should we plan for? And they don't really like the answer too much because it's not a, it's not a basic one. But the one question I've had a few times is, how much can we reduce our product that would be acceptable to consumers? In volume size, you mean, or packaging size? Volume, not packaging. Keep the packaging the same. Right. And I give them the same answer all the time until people notice. (laughs) Right, right. Once your people notice. But that's one of the, it's interesting, that's a question to be asked. Obviously, they're under cost pressures and they're trying to find their own way out of it. But when you say until people notice, then do people change or they just get there's a little bit of a, you know, a begrudging sort of sentiment that comes with it, but that doesn't change their behaviour for the brand or product purchase? No, that's what Michelle was talking about, trust. What you do is just hate the, hate the brand. Yeah, I'll keep eating it, you know. Right. But it turns a bit, sentiment turns. But they'll be angry. They'll be angry about it. They'll, they'll feel be ripped angry. off. Yeah, yeah, there's no mutual thing happening there. And if it's without explanation, if they said, look, chocolate price has gone up by 500%, you go, Okay, I understand. But when you try and sneak, you know, when you're trying to be sneaky, it, it never works. You're always in up with egg in your face. You're nodding furiously there, Michelle. You agree with that notion of trust and, you know, until people notice. And then they get angry, I should say. The anger, you, both of you said that. Absolutely. They get angry. They feel foolish that they trusted too much. It's, it's a real um, distrust is much more powerful than trust. You're kind of bumbling along trusting and then all of a sudden you realise you've been cheated all along. You've been duped. You just feel really, really angry. Um, And and I would have thought that, you know, it's it's what your traditional companies always do when they're looking at something that worries them. They say, how can we cut costs? Can we cut staff costs? I mean, to think that they're really trying to reduce the cost of the amount of chocolate that goes into a chocolate bar my goodness, I would just say, how insane is that? You know, we all know, we all know that the cost of packaging and transport and maintaining things on the shelves is probably 80% of the cost. You know, the one thing they shouldn't be doing is cutting back what the consumer wants, loves and appreciates. They should be trying to be creative and and think about their people. To the same question, uh, Michelle, that I asked Nia, so where do you think the public will turn? What you know, And we're pretty sure the contraction is going to continue. How deep it goes is what no one knows. But in your, your sort of finger to the wind, categories, products, services, you think might see some attention through the turbulence? Right. Number one, another mining boom would see Australia do well. 
So it's not a foregone conclusion that we've got the doldrums to still go into. I think that's really important. Let's not assume that or we'll all be terribly miserable and that won't do any of us any good. Iron ore prices are falling though, Michelle, at the moment. So, you know, who knows? As you say, who knows? Precious minerals, um, you know, all of these new forms, green steel, all of those mm, sorts of things true. are Australia's opportunity. That That's another conversation because it takes a different mindset, but Australia is actually a very rich country in that sense. So all I'm saying is let's not assume that doom and gloom is a, is a foregone conclusion. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's no point having everyone in Australia yeah. worrying about the cost of raisin bread. Just stop with the raisin bread. <laughs> you know, do you know how much sultanas cost at the moment? Yeah, that's right. When I started working in '83, um, you know, it was it was about values and and different kinds of people and everything. When we had a bit of a crisis, then I think it was probably '85. What was really interesting? Chocolate consumption went up, and lipstick purchasing went up. So that feeds a little bit into, I think, Nia's point that, you know, little surprises, little luxuries, so chocolate consumption went up. And lipstick, again, is kind of, you know, I just need to feel good. So we can expect that kind of behaviour. But I think what's really, really important is the data showing at the moment that the big, the biggest growth in spending is in non-food, more discretionary areas. So, um, you know, all, all the kinds of products and services, people going to department stores and buying stuff, not absolute um, basic needs like food. So that's an important clue that those are all things that can sort of slow down on a needs basis. But in my view, the critical thing is it's not, um, you know, like shoes are going to fall in a heap or dresses will be down but something else will be up. The categories themselves are less important than the people. So the people, and you would expect to have people who want special products, will be still buying those special products. They'll still be ordering particular cars, you know, electric cars, solar cars, all sorts of cars and things like that at that special end. They'll be looking for those I don't want to say just luxury products, but special products that they fall in love with, can afford to buy, very happy to buy. That end of the market we would expect to hold. We would expect luxury holidays, provided they're truly fabulous, will do really well. And we expect that at the basic area, you know, pensioners and people at the lowest end who are really struggling, will still have to buy their basic needs and they will continue to buy their basic needs. It's the stuff in the middle. If you're kind of selling basic products and you're trying to convince people to pay a lot more for them, that's the area that you're going to really struggle. And I think just it's probably good context as well to talk about, um, though we talk about mortgage pressure and interest rates, but about a third of the population has a mortgage, a third is mortgage-free, and a third is renting, right? So that's when we talk about interest rates going up, we've got to remember contextually that it's about a third of the population we're talking. On the flip side, those that don't have mortgages and they have some savings, they're going to earn a little bit more because you know, interest rates are up. So Yeah, there's movement, isn't there? And the, the people that have been most impacted and are most fearful about interest rates are obviously those holding a mortgage and particularly those people, those traditionals with a mortgage who kind of thought they could borrow, move into the house, set and forget, and everything would be okay. 
your neos will basically be saying, oh, damn it, I thought I would have been a bit further down the journey. I wanted to do something and ramp up my mortgage because they're dealers, they're, they're using in this space. Um, but, but one of the things that we mustn't forget to talk about is this massive shift of everything online. So, you know, what COVID did is it, it probably moved all the move digital ahead five years or 10 years in two years. So that has huge implications as well. But explain this to me, both all of you, actually, because it's an interesting one, Michelle. Talking to, and I, I won't name the marketer, a very big retail group who I was talking to, but it was very interesting where he was saying that they'd made, to your point, huge e-com gains through COVID. But what they were seeing is e-com coming off a bit and people going back into store, that the actual the shop, the bricks and mortar was back and people were coming to, wanting to get out. So they were in this sort of great point of tension of how do they manage the omni-channel experience and the fact that, you know, people were coming back into store. Now that made them, is it a blip? Is it a bit of novelty? Get out because we can. How long does that last? You know, Nia, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's I think it was that. I think it was that opportunity to get out finally and experience the real world. And the online, it did. I think you're absolutely right. It accelerated things about at least five years and all these things were moving towards working from home and it made them absolutely right. But it doesn't mean that they're fulfilling. You know, it doesn't mean that they're as enjoyable. So you order something online, let's say that's practical, that you need for home. Geez, it's not as satisfying going out there and connecting with people and seeing people. And I think that's part of what we're yearning for. You know, they talk about loneliness. You know, it's the biggest crisis in the world, really. England has a loneliness minister. You know, they're talking about that in Australia. Right. right. People need to go out and socialise and see other people. And uh, they- but hang on, it wasn't social media supposed to change all that? It does, it does. I'm taking the mickey, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, but because I think you're right. It does to a degree and it does bring groups for people, the community groups, et cetera. But it's just not the same and it doesn't offer the reward and emotional satisfaction of connecting with people. And we miss that, not because of COVID. We just miss that because we've been distancing ourselves for the last 20 years from each other. But I think it's a, it's a vital point. And can I add one more thing just about the mortgage stress? Is that Australia's hilarious in this way? You know, when interest rates uh, go down, we panic. Oh, my God, house prices. When interest that go up, we panic. Oh, my God, house prices. <laughs> and it's because, depending on who you talk to, really, isn't it? Right. You know, one person's going, yeah, and the other person goes, oh, no. Right. But we're so, we're so yeah, so it's, it's a funny cycle that we go through. Yeah, and very polarising. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of funny because the, but, but the critical thing is it's probably the biggest, it's substantially the biggest personal debt that anyone has. The Reserve Bank looks so closely at it because, you know, we worry about credit cards and things, but mortgages are so much larger. It's a really um, big, important thing. Um, can, can I just say for for the people who are running shops and businesses who are having to juggle this omni-channel, I think it's a bit like woke. You better get used to it. It's not going to go away. I think it's going to always be needed. And the challenge that they will have is it's just a greater demand on them than ever before. So their digital channels have to be absolutely frictionless, super fantastically easy because we are getting so, um, our expectations are so high of digital. But then by the same token, when you go into a shop, you don't expect to see a dark shop. You don't expect to see no lettuces or no towels or no anything. You're going to the shop 
for an experience. So your shop's always got to be well stacked or stocked. Your the people talking to customers have to be gorgeous. They have to, you know, pick every possible nuance that people need and then recognize that maybe they're going to buy it online anyway. That's omnichannel. And if you can nail that, you'll do really well. But if you kind of don't get there, you're in trouble. Yes. Well, as I expected, I could keep going on with you three forever. So I do want to ask um, each of you the final question was essentially the big open crystal ball of what's next. Nia and Michelle can prep for that one whilst I ask Jasmine in terms of the research that you're talking to, what are brands and, and I guess agencies in your context talking to you and asking you about in your study? What are the sort of conversations that you're having, Jasmine, with those that are looking at your research? So I've been chatting to one of the brands that I work really closely with um, about the lipstick effect and looking at, um, we've obviously spent so much money on renovating our homes over the past two years. So what does home renovation look like with the lipstick effect applied to it? Is it rather than doing a big bathroom renovation, we're spending on tapware? And um, to Nia and Michelle's point, there are going to be those people who get the really cheap new tapware. And then there's going to be those who um, indulge in the expensive luxury items. But It's about kind of applying almost that lipstick effect to the category and thinking about what are the things that might be booming or happening there. But one thing I keep kind of saying to brands and um, the people in the business is looking at you do have to keep advertising during these times. You can't go dark. And what we did see in 2020, we were tracking the campaign of um, a brand who was advertising with us over 12 months and they maintained their advertising and their brand results were really stable the rest of the category stopped spending and all of the brand results went backwards. So even though um, they were advertising, their brand didn't grow, but it held stable and that put them in a much better position to bounce back up when things got better again. And And you're not going to tell me who that is, are you, Jasmine? No, no, No. we're not. (laughs) But by another example as well is that for brands in different categories as well, the benefit of when all brands are advertising together, it boosts that category knowledge. And when brands do go silent within those categories, people, particularly if it is a complex category, people's understanding of that category as well starts to dip back as well. So it's about kind of rising the tide for all boats as well when you think about what your advertising is doing. So for me, it's saying to brands, don't go dark during this point, maintain that brand of brand awareness. Um, yeah. Mm, good points. So to wrap this up, um, what's next? And near, I'm not sure with, uh, like I, I note the lipstick effect, are you going to change the colour that you're going to buy or what happens, how it happens with you? But beyond that, me being a smartass, by the way, is what's next? You know, if we're going to ask anything, what would you say pointing to be prepared for something? I'm going to be humble enough to say that things are so unpredictable that what I say to brands is to think of a three-year plan Seems a bit kind of futile at the moment. I mean, you've got to advertise, got to, but what are you saying exactly? And what, mo- what mood are you delivering? So I'm saying there's things we could talk about, like the young people and they're changing focus and those who have less. But my sense is that you're going to have to wait a bit more for things to hopefully settle a bit before we can really get a sense of where we're heading. And at least some of the elements have to ease at some point to allow us to make those decisions. But at the moment, you talk to people about future plans and generally you talk about the topic and, you know, it's a, so much liveliness in the room and it's not as strong these days as it was before. And it's like, I think the wait and see is everyone is in a wait and see kind of place, you know? <laughs> you know, even a little thing like COVID's back. Is it back? The idea that we may have to close the schools, even as a concept, is something people are petrified. 
petrified, petrified by. So my sense is I'm going to be humble enough to say you're going to have to wait and see. Any huge plan for the brands will probably have to change constantly because you just cannot tell right now. Jasmine, your, uh, your quick take on what next, um, what you're talking to your, your partners about? I would 100% agree with Nia. I think it's also keeping abreast of what's going on, keep checking in with consumers and keep that kind of research happening because to everybody's point, things keep changing really quickly. So you have to keep your finger on the pulse with what is going on um, and being mindful and kind of just being open to everything that's going on, having conversations with your customers, having conversations with the people around you as well and understanding that this is going to keep moving and none of us can predict where it's going yet. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's the theme. Um, Michelle, will you stick with that one? Have you got some thoughts on, you know, where's your crystal ball? Oh, Paul, I think there's two kinds of businesses, just like there's two kinds of people. And there's a bunch of businesses that go, oh my God, what's going to happen? We better just wait and see. Let's not do anything traditional. And there's those businesses that are essentially saying, so what's next? What does this mean? And I had the joy of doing a series of probably 50 interviews with major organisations in the sort of logistics it was actually all about. And, of course, logistics were decimated um, during COVID. And the successful ones were saying, oh, my God, all the things that we always knew we needed to do, we were able to do it. We did it really quickly. Decisions were made like crazy so quickly. We got it done. Everything happened. And off they went. So they moved from where they were to the next level. There are organisations, and these will be the ones that sort of bubble through, pop up, are incredibly successful, that listen to their customers. They listen to their future-shaping customers. We consumers shape the future. We don't all just sit here and kind of wait for it to happen. There are future shapers among us. So organisations that want to be part of the future and, and make the future and plan for the future, plan how to execute on that plan they have, will be the ones looking to the future shapers. What are people really want? What are they imagining? What will it look like? And now in this kind of weird time is a great time to just get out there and do that rather than sort of sitting and waiting to see does the storm pass. Michelle Levine, Nia Korn, Jasmine Beach, great conversation, really helpful in that now I'm more confused than I was before, but at least everyone is too. And that's probably what <laughs> what the point of all this is, is nobody knows quite yet, but stay tuned and stay hooked in with the people and what's going on there. Thanks for joining all of you. Uh, really good and interesting conversation. Stay safe. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.